Welcome to the Jungle Brothers Podcast, episode 102. Uh, it's me, Joey, and Paul. What's up? And we got Alexa Towsy, aka Lex, aka Action, aka Flex. <laughs> Flex, whatever, whatever else you want to call me, whatever Action makes Alexa. your life easy. Action Alexa. Um, Action Alexa is joining us today. We're going to jump into a, a pretty wide ranging chat, actually, and I, I won't really preface it with anything because you're going to listen to the chat you're here now so uh before we jump into that i just wanted to let you guys know we have our coaches weekend intensive coming up on the 8th and 9th of may uh, which is a compressed version of our 12-week coaches internship so it's a two-day course we cover everything that's in our internship sales marketing uh, all of the skills that it takes to be a remarkable coach and also what it takes to build a successful pt business uh, if you're interested in that get at us we've got an early bird special if you buy it before the end of March. So by the time you're hearing this, you'll have a few days left, um, but otherwise just get in. It's gonna be really awesome. I'll be facilitating it. Paul's gonna be there, T's gonna be there, and uh, we'll have some of our coaches making guest appearances. As always, big shout out to Panavore for, uh, for giving us the coffee that we're drinking today. Lex is in on the coffee, Paul is in on the coffee. <laughs> We've got the cream. We're slightly later in the day today. So I don't know, maybe we're gonna experience some different kind of energy combined with the caffeine. Let's see where it goes. Oh look, I'm sold. Anything coffee is good. Yeah, good. Uh, I, I like it when the guest wants the coffee. Sometimes you get a guest and they're like, oh, no, thanks. And you're like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> that should be an automatic, like, you are not coming on this not podcast. Our you are not our person. Yeah. Well, we had Kashi from Persian Yoga and he said, uh, no, thank you. And then I was like, oh, you don't drink coffee? And he said, he's Persian. He said, I come from more of a tea culture. Interesting. And I was like, oh, that's nice. I was like, that's cool. I like that. I wasn't allowed to drink coffee for six months at one point because I got adrenal fatigue oh. and they cut me off from coffee. And honestly, it was probably the most miserable two weeks of my life. Like with, it felt like I had a hangover every single day. It was horrible. That it wasn't the adrenal fatigue that was doing that. It was the lack of caffeine. It was the withdrawal from the caffeine yeah, okay. that was doing that. Yeah. How about the kids these days that drink coffee? I got my nephews and nieces that drink coffee. Like I got- Is it because they them. like it or because they think it's going to give them a pickup? I don't know. It's culture. Well, the parents get they get some takeaway coffees from the cafe, and the fifteen to seventeen year olds they're getting their strong flat whites and whatnot. And I'm like, I don't know if that's good. You see it. You see, like um, I see it in Balmain. I used to see it in Bondi when I lived there. Like um, mostly girls, less less boys doing it, but girls who were probably 13, 14, dressed like their mum, so active wear, like the tights, <laughs> the shoes, the hair, you know, the puffy vest, um, and then going to the cafe and getting like the acai bowl. And the coffee. Wow. You know? That's what they do. Like my, my brother's kid, Isla, she, that's what they do. They meet up with their friends. She's in year seven, right? And they go to, I mean, she's not drinking coffee right now, but they go to meet at a cafe or something like that. To, that's like their social thing. Oh my they God. They go out there and have breakfast together and socialize. You can't thing. hate on it because we were meeting at the park. We were doing cones. We used to go on <laughs> and I had a little bicycle and I would just bike around and ask my friends if they wanted to go out to play. Yeah, it was more like that for That's me. That's how old I am. So yeah. innocent. Yeah. <laughs> cafe culture is just Ooh. on another level now. It is, hey? Mm. Um, guys, Alexa, Alexa Towsy. She's a, uh, Alexa's a sports model, a celebrity trainer, a nutrition and lifestyle coach. I took this from your website. Oh, oh well Alexa. done. She's featured, <laughs> she's featured in some big media, which I was really quite blown away by. Bloomberg Asia, CNN. Channel Nine's weekend today, and it seems that you've had a spot in like a bunch of different major publications. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your what your day to day is and how you kind of define your 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 gig? Yeah, cool. Look, God, it's always evolving. Um, the thing I love about the fact that I have been featured in a wide variety of magazines, like I remember when because I've been writing for Strong Magazine, I used to be. Um, 
the head trainer for Women's Health and Fitness magazine as well. And I'm also the head trainer for Maxim magazine. And if you look at the demographics of the magazines that I've been in, right the way from fashion through to female health and wellness through to a men's magazine. Like I remember the first time I was ever featured in Maxim because I trained a lot of their models. And one coach said to me, if you do a feature, like if you do a shoot for Maxim or you get in a men's magazine, it's going to completely undermine your credibility as a coach. And I was like, well, isn't that fucking interesting? Um, because I don't because think, you'd be showing some because skin I'd be or showing something? some skin off a body I've worked really freaking hard for. But does that make me any less of a person being in a bikini in a magazine? Does it make me any less of a good coach showing some skin in a magazine? Does it make me any less of a mental health advocate showing some skin if I'm talking about the stuff that I'm doing that you know should be good for everybody? And I just found it really closed-minded. And, you know, when the article came out, it was awesome. And it was all fitness photos. There was, like, one major photo of me and, like, some undies, and that was pretty much it. It wasn't smutty at all. The article was really good, and it had a full glute workout, like a workout that I would use with the girls that I was training for their photo shoots. And my, you know, my whole thing with that was, like, I think it's pretty cool that I have such consistent messaging with what I do that I can be in a female lifestyle magazine, I can be in a fashion magazine training models, I can be in a men's magazine imparting strength knowledge, um, you know, all these different demographics across the board as opposed to being just pinholed into one specific brand image. So I guess the stuff that I do is really different. Like I grew up with Pilates. I found the weights room really, really young as a way to cope with some stuff that was going on at home. And I'm sure we're going to touch on that later. So I do a lot of strength training. I did half Ironman, so I'm well-versed in endurance training. Um, I worked at a mixed martial arts gym, so I took some really great jewels from BJJ in terms of my warm-up and animal style flow. Um, so it's really, I just want people to be the best versions of themselves, which is kind of what you guys do. And it covers everything. That's cool. Yeah, you were saying before we jumped on the show that you, you, you like having influences from all of these different aspects of your training that you bring towards whatever you're coaching. Yeah, like I, I've been really fortunate throughout, you know, my career, I guess, of being able to do internships with really great people, being able to learn from really great people right the way through from, you know, Poliquin through to Keegan at Real Movement through to um, Marinovich through to Grey Cook you know, there's a whole Martin Rooney, you know, and all really, really different people. And because I try the training or I've tried it because of a certain thing at that particular moment in time, I take the things that I really like from the training and then I apply it to how it may work in a certain scenario with myself and with my own clients, depending on what their goal is, you know, and I think that's a really cool way of being able to train. I don't like being able to told I can't collaborate. I don't like being able to told that this is the only way to do something. Yeah. I like being able to make my own mind up and being able to apply whatever I think is relevant. And so these days, um, your day-to-day, you're working down at 498 Riley Street? Yep. So I do, yeah, PT at, 90, PT at 98 Riley Street, which is in Darlinghurst. And I've been there for, oh my God, nine years now. So when I was in Hong Kong, I was doing half Ironman and... My, I was actually working for my, I had a boyfriend at one point in time, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> Who wasn't a barbell. <laughs> Who wasn't a barbell. <laughs> I didn't even have a name action at that point. So, you know, that was well before then. Um, and he, like, he was, he was an incredible trainer. I mean, we weren't meant to be, but he was an incredible coach. He was also into BJJ, which was he owned the mixed martial arts gym that I was working at. And when I stopped drinking in Hong Kong, I got into half Ironman training as a kind of a way to get me through that. 
And while I was doing that, I was looking for any ways to be better because at that point I didn't even know how to swim. And one of the gyms that I came across while I was researching training was a place called Jim Jones, which was in Utah. And it was like at that time they were like an invite only. It was like a very, very like elite of the elite. You had to be invited to go and train the gym. And I was like, fuck yeah, I want to be invited. How do you get invited to train at the gym? And um, I ended up getting invited by one of the guys because I would just do all their workouts and I was trying to get all their standards because you had to hit like your 2000 meter row had to be, you know, for men, it was like sub seven. For women, it was like sub 730. Um, you had to be able to, you know, squat one and a half your body weight. You had to be able to deadlift two, and a, two times your body weight, all of that sort of stuff. And I loved the idea that there were standards that you had to uphold. And so I started going there every year for like two to four weeks and just intern under these guys from Mark Twight, who was like a mountaineer, um, through to Michael Blevins, who was the scientist, through to a guy called Robert Maximus. Um, Bobby Maximus. Bobby Maximus, okay. yeah, now Gluteus Maximus. Oh, okay. Because now he just did that whole butt challenge <laughs> oh, thing yeah. with the barbell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these were all like really great influences at one point or another. And it was in my fourth year there while I was doing the advanced seminar that I met Chris Feather who obviously owns and founded 98. And he was like, if you ever want to come to Sydney, our gym would love to have you. We have no female trainers. Like, you'd be more than welcome. I literally went back to Hong Kong and three months later, I was like, fuck this, I'm out of here. See you guys later. Holy shit. (laughs) And moved myself to Sydney. And I've been at 98 ever since. And it's the only gym I've ever worked at in Australia. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and I love that. So I've like been there right from the inception of the gym. I've watched him build the brand that is 98. I've watched him hold the standard. I've watched him be really picky with the community. Um, and I love what they stand for. And now, obviously, we've opened our first franchise in Bondi. I get to come in as a little bit of quality control because everyone knows I'm just a fucking pain in the ass when it comes to being pedantic <laughs> and <laughs> correcting everybody. Um, but yeah, and now it's cool. That's really great. Team. Funny, I've I so I don't know his like when you say his name, I'm like okay, yeah, I know that there's a guy that's sort of leading that charge, um, but I've never seen and I've you know people have spoken about 98 Riley Street for years. Mm. I've known other trainers who have who have worked there. Uh, I, th- I trained there once. I think I dropped in when Clint Hill was doing a session. Yeah, yeah, cool. And and checked it out. It's a beautiful space, um, but I've never seen this guy, Chris Feather, <laughs> the is, enigma. The yeah, enigma like that is, is Chris. He, is he? Um, <laughs> You can't miss him. He doesn't have like a Bobby Maximus kind of vibe, like because he's quite big on the social media. Chris Feather, the similar kind of dude. He is. He you would know him by how much he doesn't speak. I think Um, he's the guy that doesn't need to say anything to have a presence. Right. And I think that says a lot about. That's a real testament to somebody's character and work ethic if they can just walk into a room and get on with this stuff very, very quietly without having to say anything. Everyone knows that he's so a I want dog. that. That's the trade he's, I want. You know, yeah, he's just, he's a really, he's, so he's kind of like they're polar opposites when it comes to that. Right. You know, whereas Bobby Maximus, he's still a legend and I still have a lot of time for him, but he's very outspoken on social media. That's definitely a tool. Chris Feather is kind of just not like that, but you just know who he is just by being in his mere presence. Oh. But you can't miss him. If you walked in the gym, he's like the six foot four fucking Oh, that helps. Massive guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's like a unit. Only <laughs> just, though. Only just. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's incredible. Like, okay. his work ethic is unbelievable. Well, I said to you before that I'm happy to see that there's finally 
a decent gym moving down to Bondi Beach. Can we quote you on that? Please do. We're going to piss off by like. Well, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's one other place that? that I know that's quite busy and it's a piece of shit. Ah. <laughs> there are no names. The gym that shall not be named. But you know, for the fittest, you could call it like the, the most um, fit centric kind of part of Sydney in a way. Yeah. Then, you know, there's good, like there's little CrossFit gyms and studios that have popped up, but there's never been anything that's big and that has kind of. Not mass appeal, but something that has really made its mark on that suburb. At yeah. the beach side, there's plenty going on in the junction. Um, so I think it's really cool that there's something that's solid and is a solid training methodology with its own sound beliefs that, you know, that has standards that's going to be there. Yeah, that's no, good. And we've got some really cool people in there too. You know, it's um, everyone comes in there and the beauty of working there is everybody that walks in the door understands the reputation of 98 in terms of that it's not about what you look like it's about your work ethic it's about performance first and foremost and it's about what you bring to the team so it's all about your contribution to the team that's cool pretty much like that's what their whole methodology is brought about like our game day is all about what you bring to the team and your attitude so yeah Chris has been really good in maintaining of, the standard with that a lot of parallels with jungle brothers stuff totally isn't there yeah I gotta come down yeah. Yeah, you should. We mm. should do like a group workout. It's my birthday coming up, so maybe we can do a group workout for my birthday. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Are you going to make us get trail. on cardio machines? Fucking A. I don't even up. do car. I started doing the ESD, and oh my God, what a shock. Cardio is hardio. Well, you'll shine over us. Don't worry about that. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I My first ESD that I did at 98 while I was at Bondi, I did it with a class, and I was it was a little class. Thank fuck, because... <laughs> I, um, it was like this hard interval. I haven't done cardio in ages because I'm like a weights girl. Ever since I did half Ironman, I'm like, I do not want to do cardio anymore. But I was like trying to get into boxing. I'm like really not boxing fit. So I was like, right, I'm going to commit to the SD. I got off the bike and they're videoing me off the bike. And as I get off, I sat on the floor and someone asked me a question. I vomited all over the floor. Oh, damn. All over myself. Yeah. All over the floor. That's the girl for all us. Over- there, Sam. That's our like, girl. Oh, my God. And I was like, and yep, people, this is how you do an all out effort. This is yeah, what it should right. look like. Yeah. Standards. Class is not yeah. over until everyone vomits like that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. ESD for those, the uninitiated, is energy system development. So, we're talking. Um, like really hard cardio efforts could be short, could be long, but it's like, yeah, 100%. Lungs on fire, huffing and puffing. Lungs on fire, yep. All about building the engine. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So, Lex, I first learned about you um, listening to, I think it was when I listened to you on the Mind Muscle Project podcast. Oh my God. That was the first podcast I ever did when I came to Australia. Oh, wow. You, like, yeah, it, was, it was really good. I found it really entertaining. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she seems cool. Um, <laughs> Not just some hot fitness chick out there. She'll be on Hang my on podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Goals. <laughs> um, but I, but what, was, what was interesting to me at that time, and I could, maybe I don't recollect it. Uh, as well as I, you know, as, as it was, but it was really a talk about fitness and training and your beliefs around that stuff. Mm. And then um, seeing the progress with 98 Riley Street, I think I started following on Instagram at, at around that same time that I listened to the podcast. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, you know, obviously you have a, a large presence on social media. You, you look quite nice in your photographs. <laughs> Um, you know, there's, you know, there's a Is lot. Is he always a diplomat? <laughs> <laughs> Can a you lot. write that on no. my bio? She I looks quite nice in her chick. photos. I called you a hot chick before we started recording. <laughs> but the, but you know, it's like you, I, I was seeing you and I'm like, oh, she's a fitness influencer and a trainer and, and really that's cool. And there seems to be a lot of those people, you know, in our social media world these days. 
Um, you've been coming down to our gym for ages because you get treated by Jared Thatcher, mm-hmm. who's the AR, ART practitioner in-house. Shout mm-hmm. out to J-Rod. AKA the pain train. The pain mm-hmm. train, AKA Jerry. <laughs> oh, is that his nickname? That's what Aaron likes to call him. Okay, never heard that one yeah. before. I'm going to start calling him that now. Oh, that's going to hurt. <laughs> um, but what was what was really interesting is, is reconnecting with you or connecting with you personally down here at the gym and then looking more into your social media and finding out more about what you're actually about there's this huge, uh, you're a huge advocate of mental health. Yeah. And it's something that you talk a lot about. And I've since listened to you on other podcasts and Paul's listened to a bit as well. And you've got a, a quite a full on story, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is obviously something that kind of drives you with what you do as a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that very fascinating because we've, we spoke to, uh, we had a friend on the podcast uh, a little while ago, Shona Virtue. Oh yeah, cool. You know Shona, I'm sure. And she's, and I see a lot of similarities there. She has also a huge Instagram following, but she also has real things to say. And there's, there's actually a, a strong message there. And I think that it's very rare in this time now with the social media and with the, the way that we get engagement and the, the, you know, the techniques we use and what we post to have someone that does that well, but also actually has some shit they want to tell the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, God, when I first came to Australia, there was no, like, I'd, I hadn't even got Instagram. Like, I didn't even know what it was. It was literally just starting to take off when I left Hong Kong. When was that? Um, that would have been, like, what, eight, nine years ago now? Okay. Yeah, so I didn't even have it. didn't know what it was. Um, and I actually had a management agency when I first came to Australia, and I couldn't, we couldn't get any brand to work with me initially for paid work because I didn't have an Instagram following huh. because I wasn't an influencer. And I freaking hate that word because I tell you what, the amount of times I've been into schools to do a mental health presentation and I've had a chat to the kids afterwards and like some of the young ones have been like, oh, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to be an influencer. And I'm like, oh my fucking God, what do you want to influence? Mm. And they're like, I don't know. I just want to get paid to like promote shit. I'm like, oh my God, is that what we've turned this generation into? You know, and it really, it kind of, it bothers me a uh, little yeah, bit. That's, that's a bit upsetting. You know, and I... <clears throat> I think social media, and again, it's something I talk about in the mental health talks all the time in terms of like self-care and moderating it, like ways to moderate it, but it can be such a huge positive tool if you're using it for the right reasons. And like, I'm not going to lie, 85% of my business, I would say PT wise comes through Instagram because I look really nice in my photos. <laughs> <laughs> look up, Jason. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it's good for that, but I'm always kind of like, like you said, I want to have real things to say. Like I actually want to be able to help people and to make a positive impact. So I always find it kind of disappointing that when other people have this incredible platform and they don't utilize it for positive things, they use it to disparage others or to promote themselves at the expense of others or to, you know, just put up videos of their ass in great scrunchy tights. And let's not take away from the fact that the asses look great and there is a time and a place. And the scrunchy tights are a great advancement in tight technology. You know, I'm exactly. Learning. I'm learning. You yeah. know, so whatever works for your self-confidence. But, you know, like it, it, is, it can be a really hugely powerful positive tool, but there are so many things that can go wrong with it and I just wish more people would use it for positive. Um, I had a really bad experience with social media. Probably it would have been... F- three years ago now where um, somebody set up an Instagram page under like Action Alexa underscore, I think. And there was a, it was on private. I have a, I think I have an idea of who set it up now. 
because I did quite a bit of research, but it oh. was like the bio was something like um, my hips might be fucked, but I can go toe to toe with the young pups. Hashtag mothers lock up your sons. Oh shit. And I was like, my God. What is this? Word, that's a wordsmith. <laughs> yeah. But I was laughing when I got sent it because I was like, that's actually really clever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wish I had thought of all of that. But, um, you know, people would send me stuff of like this guy putting up stories and it was a guy who was, it was basically slut shaming. And I was like, I just find it really interesting how people find the time to do this stuff to bring down other people. So someone who just wanted to damage your reputation? Yeah, and there were other women on there that I knew that were also getting the same thing, that they'd appear prominently in stories um, along the same lines of like, you know, women who looked really good or who were really strong who were getting accused of like taking steroids and stuff. And it just seemed to be this person's private account of it. Well, what bothered me was there were people in the industry who I knew personally who were actually laughing Oh, wow. at the post or who were commenting or who were getting involved. And I was like, this is not what I would have expected from people who I really respect in the industry. And it just really, yeah, that's the the downside of social media is that we're giving people a platform to do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. And not all of it is good. Yeah, that's re- that's really disappointing. Yeah. You are... Uh so you, you have an idea of who it was? Is yeah. that, did you fo- like, is that something you can even follow up? Do you, like, do you go down that hole? Or no, you, just like, you don't. I just, I, st- I told it. people to stop sending it to me because I was like, at the end of the day, and this is, again, mental health wise, the one thing you can never control what everybody else is going to do. And what other people think of you or what they're saying about you is really none of your business. The only thing that you really can control is how you respond to the situation. And me getting angry or frustrated or giving energy to that situation the only person who's being affected negatively by that is me. Because mm. at the end of the day, these people don't give a fuck. So I kind of made the choice to take a step back and be like, just don't send me any other stuff because I'm just not, I'm going to choose not to engage. And that is the biggest thing about social media, I think. If we're looking at self-care and self-care being finding all the things in life that bring you joy and make you happy, if social media or the accounts you're engaging, for me anyway, if they're not inspiring, educating or empowering you or me, I just don't engage with them. Good on you. Mm. Taking the high road. Trying. I, I guess this is the uh, – I can't remember who – which girl uh, kind of yeah, made me realise this, but, I mean, girls get harassed on social media mm. and then particularly if you have a bit of a following, if you are someone who's, you know, you've got a, a large audience, then those levels of harassment go up. Especially if you have an opinion yeah. about things. Um, to be honest, like outside of that, I haven't really been touched on social media. I don't get bullied a lot because I tend to stay in my own lane in right. terms of like I have my strong beliefs. They're not – I don't think they're particularly controversial and all of my stuff is really about helping other people as opposed to trying to convince people to buy something or convince people to think a certain way. It's really just like be a good human. Now, who can argue with that? Not very many people really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's – it's interesting. It's an interesting forum. Could you take us, could you tell us your, what got you to where you are and what got you as passionate about the mental health movement as you, uh, you know, give us that background? Um, so when I was 15, my mum was diagnosed with manic depression and I was also, that was the first thing that was happening, but the second thing that was happening was I was being bullied at school for being too skinny. So my nickname back then, believe it or not, was actually Alexa Anorexa. Savage. I know. <laughs> I know, very clever. It rhymes, you know, it's great. Kids are really awesome. My last name um, is Worthington. I was known as Joe Worth Nothing, but only a few times. Oh. Yeah, I mean, a couple of kids called me that. Savage. I I, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Tears yeah. are in the past. Isn't it crazy how, yeah, <laughs> far out. I was like, that's creative though. Good on you guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
yeah, if only my haters could see me flex now, who knew? <laughs> but, um, you know, it started me on a mission for muscles, you know, and I found the gym when I was 15. So I needed a safe place away from home. Um, I found this gym down the road and the people in the gym had gave me this hugely positive experience. Um, so I was really lucky in that and I started lifting weights right from then and there. I had a coach that took me under, the, under his wing um, and I started viewing the gym as like a safe place, like a sanctuary, you know, and it became the first place that I felt empowered and it was the first place that I, I guess I really discovered the connection between developing physical strength and then the mental fortitude and resilience that came along with that. And that's mm. something that I've been able to apply into everyday life and that's one of the reasons why I coach because that gift of empowerment is something that I want to pay forward. Like for me as both a woman and as a coach, there is nothing more empowering than see someone or rewarding, I should say, than seeing someone become empowered in their training then watching how that translates into their attitude towards the rest of their life. And so for me, that's kind of like, that's my whole philosophy. When I feel physically strong, I think strong thoughts and I want to be able to share that gift with everybody else who comes to train with me. It's a special thing to, to watch, isn't it? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, I had, I had this client called Lizzie and I talk about her a lot because she really did influence my life in more ways than she will ever know. They often don't realise how much they have an effect on the coach, don't no, they? No, yeah. 100%. Like, she would come in and she had, um, she had bipolar. She was also being bullied at work and she had had this horrific car accident when she was younger which meant that she'd pretty much broken a lot of bones in her body and then had to be put back together and she'd never been in a weights room before. She was absolutely terrified. Um, one, of being judged, but two, you know, obviously the whole female... Um, females tend to have this whole psychological attachment to not wanting to do weights to a certain level and for whatever reason and anyway so she was terrified we started right at the beginning and I remember the day that she did like a trap bar deadlift for like 30 kgs which is nothing in our gym but for her it was like the best day of her freaking mm, life mm. she made me video it she was a lawyer by day so she was in a male dominated environment she made me video it she took this video back to her work and she made all the boys at work watch it and she messaged me from work that day and I was unbelievable. She's like, you know, for the first time today, I felt like I had so much confidence. She was like, I felt strong, I felt empowered. I said no for the first time today and I was able to set my boundaries and really stand up for myself and what I believed in. And I was like, and that is a pretty much great summation of what training should be about, how it applies to real life. And that was your experience as a 15-year-old going into this gym. No, well, that's my client now, but that oh, was oh, my... No, yeah. I mean, but that's kind oh, of... yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's where it came from. That's how I felt. And yeah. I was like, finally, that's, you know, that's what life is about. I finally managed to come full circle and that's, I'm going to give the gift yes. on. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. What, yeah. Um, what sparked you? Because I, I feel like for a 15-year-old girl to go into a gym at, at any stage, like now... But, you know, going back like when we were growing up was quite a unique thing, right? To, for, yeah. for, for a girl at that age to turn up to a gym and go, yeah, I'm going to push some weights. Who can help me out? Whatever. Um, what was the catalyst? Like, obviously, you were, you were, it, was, it was your sanctuary. But what, what influenced you to do that as opposed to doing some, I don't know, something else? Something else? Yeah. Did you, you know, was it part something in your family or did you... Was it was a it movie movies? you watch? <laughs> watch? Yeah. Rocky! Yeah. No. <laughs> um, no, my family were not gym goers at all. Like my dad's nickname was Bones. So my dad like actually played semi-professional cricket and soccer, but he was like really skinny. And my mum was a nurse, but they were both in the military. Okay. So they met in the military. Um, but my mum, yeah, she was really skinny as well. So, like, I didn't even know where my genetics came from because I do not look anything like my parents. But 
I just happened to be walking past the gym one day. So it was nothing that what anybody had said. I happened to be walking past the gym, which was the YMCA. And it was all back in the aerobics days. And one of the guys outside just started chatting to me. And I was just really interested by what they did. And he was like, why don't you come watch the class? Why don't you try a class? And I came in and that was, it was from that moment on. Like I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. How cool. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I think it really reinforces for me anyway, and like it would be for you guys as well, like as a coach, you have this incredible opportunity to give somebody such a positive experience or the experience that you give them first off will often dictate how they see the gym and what they do with training for the rest of their life. Because if they have a really shitty experience first up, they're probably not going to go back to the gym and they're not going to recommend anyone else does either. Spot on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You can really, you just hope that you can be there at the right time to give the person that experience. Yeah. I think there's nothing more disappointing than when you know you can do that and for whatever reason they're not ready for it yet and you're like, okay, yeah, i got to let it go. It's the same as mental health though as well. You know, like you could have anyone going through anything at any given time and you might be there and you might be able to help them but they just, they're not able, they're not in a position. It's not the right time for them to be helped. Yeah. But they'll, they'll circle back. Hopefully. Eventually, yeah. Hopefully. Well, you just got to be there, don't you? Absolutely. So the gym became your sanctuary. Um, you were at, going to school at the time. Mm-hmm. So what happens? You start putting on a bit of muscle, start getting a bit stronger. How does that actually play out day to day at school? Like what is it, what does it shift in you? How does it change your behavior? Well, I was sort of getting to the end of my school years at point, you know, 15, 16. Um, I wanted to date guys who were sporty. So I was, you know, be looking for the first 15, the captain of the first 15. <laughs> You know you're, how it you're goes. You grew up in New Zealand. At this I grew point. up in New Zealand. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I moved to New Zealand from the UK when I was ten. So I went to military school until I was ten, and then I moved to New Zealand um, after that because our only family was in New Zealand. And then I went to school in Kerry, Kerry, which is right up north. And then I went to school in Gisborne. Went to Gisborne Girls High. So I went to an all girls school. Had the highest pregnancy rate in Australasia. Oh, <coughs> I wow. was not part of that. That is not why my name is Action Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> Just putting that out there now. <laughs> Um, went to school there and then I actually went to university in Auckland and so my gym sort of life started coming in at the end of my high school years as I was looking to move I guess you know looking to go to university when I was 17 18 Um, and then at university like I found a gym close to uni and I would go there and I had a trainer that would train me like three times a week for half an hour and then I would wrestle so I wrestled yep WWE style, my name is Glacier. Glacier? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You re- like, as in you performed? Yeah, as in I performed. Holy shit, at, a, the, at the uni? At, well, not at uni. So I joined, um, it was a women's sports fighting gym. So I joined there and did that. We trained properly and then we would do these, yeah, we would do these performances at like these Christian schools, like the worst demographic. And I was like banging on the ropes and screaming and, you know, oh, it was horrendous. Yeah, so I did that. And then I played American football for four seasons. Holy shit. Yeah, so I just like to hit shit. Okay. So I got big and strong and liked to hit shit. And that was how I channeled my aggression. Right on. <laughs> right on, man. Yeah. Prior to going to the gym, you, yeah. you weren't playing sport and you weren't athletic. That was your first kind of foray into physical movement? That, yeah. yeah, into the hardcore side of okay. it. So like yeah. my dad played soccer, so he yeah. used to like – played soccer and he played cricket. He took me to Lords and I was just run around, around, around. So I was always very active. Okay. Um, he made me play soccer. 
Um, he made me try cricket. Freaking hated it. I was really bad at it. There are some sports I'm just not designed to play. No one gets aggression out playing cricket. Oh my god, I got a, black, <laughs> I got a few black eyes though, not being able to catch balls properly. Yeah, you get fucked up, but you don't get oh. to hit anything, do you? No. Well, I don't think I hit anything at all. So you know, that was it. Was a great experience. Um, so I tried that, but up until that point, I'd never really played anything. I guess aggressive. I did horse riding, so I competed in horse riding. I actually learned to ride on a dog. When I was little, I know random, random Amazing. fact of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see some old videos of that on your Instagram. I don't think, yeah, I know, right? Imagine. Thank God social media wasn't invented when I used to do this shit because Glacier would like <laughs> break the internet. <laughs> <laughs> was it the, um, was it like, because uh, like a lot of people, then it's not easy for them to try new things, mm. you know, especially when you're young and physical things, if you feel like you're not capable. Uh, was it the starting to go to the gym that gave you, that type of attitude or that tendency to be like, hey, I'll give it a go. I'll yeah. show myself some, you know, be vulnerable for a bit and have a go. Or was that, did you already have that? Or was it like when you started getting strong, you're like, oh, I'll, I feel like I could try things, you know? 100%. The gym definitely gave me the confidence yeah, and also yeah. the people in the gym. Yes. Like, you know, my coach was a professional softball player. Yeah. He taught me boxing. I loved boxing and through boxing with him, I met other people who box, so I would try and hit pads with them. Um, and then I got into sports fighting off the back of that. One of my other coaches that trained me later on down the track when I really got wanted to focus on putting on some muscle, his partner was Miss Olympia at the time. Mm. He really took me under his wing, but he also happened to be the coach of an American football team. And he was like, I think you do really well as quarterback. That's I was really like, I don't want to play quarterback. I want to hit things. Yeah. So yeah. I went in and I, I wanted to like, so I played linebacker. Linebacker, that's and, the position. And again, one of the people, one of the girls on my team, mm. she was a captain of one of the New Zealand Maldi rugby league teams. So she taught me how to tackle. You know, so I right from the get-go, I would meet just incidentally these people who would shape portions of my life. Mm. And I was literally, when I was playing American football in South Auckland, I was the only white girl in my team. I would stay at the boys' houses. Some of the some of my best mates played for the Warriors at that time. So I would stay at the boys' house on the weekend. They would come and watch me play footy Mad. out there. And, like, the girls would take me to these gangster bars <laughs> and, like, <laughs> literally, and they'd be blocking for me. And no. I'd just be standing in <laughs> the bar going, oh. <laughs> but, you know, like, it was such a, it was such a really cool point in my life. Um, I like had it. all these incredibly diverse people around who really – very allowed me to fit absolutely and yeah. they really gave me the confidence to try new things and allow myself to figure out if I was good at them or not yeah. you know so I was really lucky that a lot of the times that I've tried something new I've met people who've made it a positive experience and so right from the get-go I didn't have a really shitty experience with things that meant I was kind of like oh I don't know if I want to try that because every time I'd gone in and tried something, I'd got something out of it. I'd made some huge gains, whether it be the sport itself, or whether the people I'd met through it. So I think having those early positive experiences really allowed me to explore some stuff. Yeah. 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 Oh, I guess I asked because it's on the mind this week with uh, Tiora. You met yeah. Tia. He, um, his kids are breakdancing at the mm. moment with Ty, one of our coaches, who's a breakdancer. And he's got them going to competitions. And they went to a competition last week. And uh, they didn't compete. They were going to, but they got in there and they've been breaking for a while, but uh, the energy in there was just too intimidating. But they're going back again this weekend. They've got a plan and it's just amazing to see the kids, like even like kids going and competing at that age in something that I would find seriously oh. intimidating. Just mm. standing up in front of a group. I mean, walking into a gym alone and working out in front of people is very intimidating for, for, for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. So the discussion was there. I was like, how do you, 
how do kids get to that point where they feel confident to go and dance in front of a room full of people in a competition and trying to just reflect on what, what that is. It's like, kind of like the parenting or it's those coaches that are yeah. around those kids and it's the time that they put into them and the attitudes that they kind of – well, the space that they create around, you know, yeah. giving the kids feedback and lifting them up is the same as like what happened with you, I guess, with those coaches around you. And also you'd want to think that like the dancing community would be like, hey, there's these new kids here. Yes. We should really get behind them because we were them. Yes. Like it pays to remember like every point. Yeah. And that's like, you know, if you get people walking in here, he'd be like, oh my God, what is it you guys do? Well, they look at BJJ and they're like, oh my God, I could never do that. Yeah. But it's like, we have to kind of be really humble in that respect and go back, you know, we were once this person walking into the gym, what kind of an experience we want to give them. Those dancers that's should right. be going, this is our next generation. Mm. We should make them feel really welcome because this could be our little brother or little sister or, you know, someone else we want to encourage. But Sadly, not a lot of people do that. Well, they forget. It's yeah, easy to forget. It's easy to forget. I guess that's yeah. what I was getting to. But it seems like you haven't forgotten somewhat. Like, because that's no. we, those were your experiences, and they seem like they were, as you said, building blocks for yourself becoming a coach, and then furthermore helping people. Oh, hundred percent. You read. Today. You read stories too, like you know, um, like guys who were really, really strict in real life, or you know, aren't necessarily the most personable of people. Oh, you know, well, when I was younger, my parents were really strict. Or when I was younger, my coach used to say to me, oh, you're really shit all the time. It's like, that's what they remember. And then that's yes. what they grow up coaching. Yeah. That's the attitude. Whereas I never want to be that person. Mm. You know, I want to be the person that someone walks out, even if they haven't, um, you know, they don't feel like they potentially met their expectations or whatever. They still walk out feeling pretty good about themselves or thinking that they've at least learned something or come yes. away with something or feel good. You know, there's nothing worse than leaving somewhere with a really bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't mean you can't give a bit of tough love every now and again, right? No, I think but some people definitely know. You never want to be the enabler. No. But, um, you know, at some point you do have to enforce that people need to take responsibility for themselves, whether it be through their own movement or through taking care of themselves or having some self-confidence. Um, you can only help people who are willing to help themselves. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. So coming out of that, that, that bullying experience, which has obviously shaped – you know, it's shaped you. I mean, as everyone's experience of life does, right? Like your mm. adolescence is, is, um, is impactful for all of us. Um, what, how, how did that shift? When you're, in a, when you're in a situation, you're at school, you're getting bullied, people are calling you a name. Mm. How do you actually change that? What, what happens there? I think there's two ways you can deal with it. Um, you can let it get to you and choose to do nothing about it and alien, you know, sort of like isolate yourself. And sadly, that's what happens a lot of times now if they don't have a really supportive community around them. Mm. You know, I was thinking about this the other day because I get asked often, like, how am I so resilient? Because I have been through a shitload and my first choice is always, fuck this, how do I get around this or how do I adapt or what have I got to do to make this better? It's never like, all right, I just give up. I've never accepted defeat. And I think the only thing I can really put it down to, because it wasn't really, I've never been, this has never been reinforced to me at home so much. Um, and obviously I wasn't at the gym when I was a kid. I think growing up in a military community has had a m more impactful um, effect, I guess, than I would have ever imagined because I have been resilient ever since I was a kid. You know, like I've, that's always, it's never been a question whether, like I know that I'll always be okay. I'll know that whatever I set out to do, I will always succeed at it because I know that I have that attitude. Like it's just, for some reason, that's just ingrained in me. What is it about uh, being a military kid 
that does that? Is it the moving around or was it kind of the, the traits that military hold? I think it's a bit of both, bit you know, like we moved around every six months. Like I lived in England, Ireland and Germany and I was always having to move schools. I was always having to make new friends. Yeah. I was always having to leave friends. I was always having to reintegrate myself into another community. I was always having to be by myself a lot. Like I'm an only child. Mm-hmm. And if, when my parents, like my dad went to war, my mum was off being a medic. I was often left in the mess by myself, having Which to war? entertain myself. He was in the Falklands War. Yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah, so he's got a, he had a bullet scar across his ear where a bullet flicked past. Oh my, and just missed him. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was really, I was left by myself a lot. I had to deal with everything by myself. Plus I'd always have to go into a new school and have to make do by myself and make new friends and then leave and do the whole process all over again. So I think being part of that, you have to learn to adapt. You have to be okay if you're going to grow up in that environment. You don't really have a choice not to be okay. You know, um, otherwise you're just going to sort of fail a life and what are your parents going to do with you? You know, I just, I don't really think I ever thought there was any other choice but to do that. Um, and then, of course, all the qualities that come from being within a military community, military community, I can't even talk today. Um, you know, so you have got that resilience that's automatically built into everyone that chooses that kind of environment to yeah, be sure. in. You've got the work ethic, you've got the discipline, you've got the commitment, you've got the innate motivation. You don't need external people motivating you to do things you know you have that already built in um the the honesty and the trust and the self-respect I think those are all things that come with being that so I think for me it was always just I grew up in that environment and whether people told me that um through their own words that was just what I witnessed all the time and so that's just what I grew up doing yeah Yeah, that's obviously like all of those things are very desirable qualities and there's, you know, there's a spectrum with all these things, right? Mm-hmm. Like too much of all that becomes like a regime, mm-hmm. you know, where you have no self-expression and then none of that, you, you, it's, it's chaos. Mm. And right, like um, thinking of like raising a child with, without discipline and without structures and, you know, without responsibility and whatever. Um, what do you think, how do you see it? Like if you're passing, because it obviously has brought you to where you are, yeah. Is that something that you hold close to you and you're like, I want to, I want to carry this on to others? Or do you also see, uh, is there like negatives to having grown up that way and being uprooted and taken from one community and moved to another school and all those, the, the downsides of all those things? There are definitely parts of it. Like my work ethic, like I, you know, if there's anything that I was going to say, like I've worked for every single thing that I've ever been given. I've never been handed anything on a silver platter. So like, you know, my magazine cover, for example, I use that as a prime example of that. Like some people are picked off Instagram just because they look really good or they've got a massive following and people want them to use them to advertise the magazine. I literally wrote for a magazine for free for 18 months. Then I hired an editorial photographer where I chose to train her for free three times a week for 12 weeks so that she would then shoot me with no guarantee that the photos were going to be used in the magazine. But I flew myself to Melbourne to go to the studio. I paid, you know, obviously the shoot through the training. I submitted the photos and, you know, the rest is history. But it was nothing Nothing I've ever done has been from being at the right place at the right time or meeting the right mm. person or through knowing somebody. It's always been for like, okay, this is what I want. What are the steps that I need to get there and working for that? And I think that comes from the military um, side of things. The downside of that is that because I've always been kind of, I guess, transient or I've always moved around a lot, I don't get attached to people. 
and I find it very easy to disengage. So maybe that's why I've been single for the last nine years. Who knows? Like maybe I'm underneath it all like a commitment phobe. I like being a nomad. I hate the feeling of being tied in one place. I've always decided I never wanted to own a gym because I never wanted to have roots that I had to stay there. I like traveling around. So there is kind of like the downside of that or being so independent that it's actually like guys have said to me, it's very hard to date me because I don't need them. Yeah. You know, and I don't even know if that's a thing, but fuck, it seems to be, but I can't play the needy female. Like I find it really difficult. Can you come and change my light bulb? You can't do it. <laughs> you know, like I just can't, can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> But, you know, there is that side of there is that side of things that maybe I am too independent, I am too capable. And I think the first time I noticed the negative effect of that was when I had my hip replacement and I was forced to ask for help. I did not know how to ask for help because I've always done everything by myself. So I think that was the biggest lesson that came out of that is you can go too far down the other end. And I think a lot of guys will relate to this, especially if they've been brought up in either military or you know, sporting performance kind of households, you get taught to do everything by yourself and that asking for help is kind of like a weakness. Yeah. And that was definitely a big thing for me, which is interesting given that I now talk about that a lot when I go into schools and talk about mental health for living. Yeah, right. Well, because a lot of boys, like that that story hits a lot of them and they're like, yeah, I, I'm. Yeah. that's me. Because it's like, it's one of those things. It's like, I remember going to like this youth mental health conference where it was like one of the three biggest reasons why people don't want to speak up, like youth don't want to speak up when something's going on with them. And one of them was that they don't want to be seen as an attention seeker. You know, like they don't want to be the person that shows weakness or has people feeling sorry for them. And I, I was sort of thinking about it. It was like, Every International Women's Day, invariably, I'll do some media and I always get asked the question, like, what does being strong mean to you? And when I first started answering that question, it was kind of like, oh, you know, being strong is, you know, being independent and capable and standing on your own two feet and never having to ask for help. And then, you know, and then I was sort of sitting down going, actually, really, that's not true at all. That's not being strong at all. I find that really easy. Like, that's not hard for me at all to do everything by myself. What's really freaking hard is to identify when something's not going your way or when you're not feeling quite right and then actually having the courage to reach out and ask for help and let someone else in and allow yourself to be vulnerable. Like, it shouldn't be courageous. It should be normalised, but it's not. Like, that's mm, actually mm. these days in society where that is perceived as a little bit of a weakness or there is a stigma surrounding it. It's much harder to do that, but that's a really strong thing to be able to do and then to be able to take the help, you know? Yeah, that's a powerful message. I think it's 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 a Western thing, but it seems to be a real Aussie thing as well. Oh, and and, so much and I'm so. guessing like a Kiwi thing, and you know whatever our culture is is largely British, so it's like yeah, that like pull your head in, sort of you know um, man up. Yeah, man up, pick yeah. yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever the fuck you know, and, and get on with it kind of thing and suck um, it up. Who did I listen to? There's a Vice journalist who I heard. I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast, but he's a He's a war journalist mm. and, he, and he just covers, um, you know, really horrible things in, in parts of the world where there's terrible shit going down. And he's been doing it for so long and he grew up, I think, in like a really strict, maybe a military family. But he was talking about how he actually lo he lost the ability to cry. And he, he hasn't cried for like 10 years. And he's been wow. undergoing therapy, actually MDMA therapy. And he's been able he's on the to. Joe Rogan he's, podcast. He's what else would he be doing? <laughs> but he's been able to reconnect with the ability to cry. And I thought, wow. I was like, "Fuck, man, that's." But that's like that's like the real height of this thing of like 
sucking it up and, and just getting on with it is like you end up becoming like a, like a rock. Yeah, and you, you do. And it's, it's really hard because then, you know, the flip side of that is that I think sometimes people forget to then ask how you are because they think that you don't need them. You know, so I've had times, like I think at the beginning of COVID, like I also had surgery, I had some cervical cancer cut out and very few people knew about it. But the people that did know, some of them didn't reach out to ask how I was. And I think that was because they just assumed You're that you. I would be absolutely Solid. fine yeah. and I didn't need any help and I was, wasn't going to ask. You know, and then I was sort of on the other side of that going, but why haven't they reached out? Why aren't they asking how I am? And I was sort of getting it almost for the first time, getting a little bit dejected about it. Oh, do they not care? And when I spoke to them afterwards, I was like, honestly, we just kind of assumed that you'd be okay because you're always okay. You never want anyone to help you. And I was like, oh, maybe I do need someone to change yeah, my yeah. life. <laughs> 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 you know, so it was, it was a really interesting journey. Like that was one of the biggest lessons that came out of the whole significant injury portion of things is like it's okay to ask for help like it's actually a really good thing and then it allows you like that vulnerability also allows the other people around you to be vulnerable as well i like the way you put it when i listened to you on that on the the podcast the imperfectly perfect podcast yeah. is it um they're doing good things uh that the the line is i'm fine you, met, you said that that's like, that's all, like, uh, I think you said it was a courteous response mm. that we just use culturally. It's like, so I'm like, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm fine. And it's, and it, and it just, it, it's just the, you just don't want to put your shit onto somebody else. So you're like, I'm fine. Even if you've got a bunch of shit going on. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and that is almost like the wall that we put up, which, which disallows us to deal with those things. Yeah, it is. It's like, so it's thought that like we tell four, four or five lies every single day. So in the space of a year, that's about 1,500 mm. lies. By the time we're 60, it's estimated that I think it's over like 100,000 lies that we will have told, mm. which is a lot of lying. And social psychologists believe that I'm fine is one of the biggest and most common lies that we tell ourselves and each other every single day. So it's kind of like, and it is, if you, you know, I grew up in a time where I'm courteous is the, you know, is the response that you give if someone asks how you are. And quite often now, like you'll answer that without even actually stopping to think about how you're actually feeling. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, we've got so used to just being courteous and being like, how are you, mate? Without actually stopping to listen for the actual response. Yes. We just throw these words out and we're having this conversation without actually engaging in a conversation. We're just throwing words at each other yeah. with no meaning. And I think it's time that we sort of, the whole mindful movement is great in that respect because it should force us to slow down and stop and be like, okay, I want to genuinely ask that question because I genuinely care about the people around me. So I need to stop. And instead of listening for something else to say, I just need to wait for that person to respond and I need to pay attention because how they speak and what they do when they speak could tell me volumes about whether they're actually fine or whether I need to maybe ask that question again or rephrase it because maybe they're not, you know? So I think that's definitely something else I've learned as well is like slowing down and trying to be really authentic in my dealings with people. That's very interesting. Yeah, we've taken it so far that you'll ask someone how they are and then they'll respond by asking you how you are. Like it's like, hey, gum. Hey, gum. And that's it. And it's like, yeah. wait, no one answered either, either person's <laughs> question. You yeah. know what I mean? But like that's, that's the reality of how far that, like the, the language and this desire to be courteous has gone. Well, I think it's also like, imagine, imagine you got so used to someone saying, how are you? And I'm fine. Answering with I'm fine all the time that suddenly you go, how are you? And they go, I'm not, I'm really not okay. And you're like, what? What do you mean? Like, now what, what do I say? Like, 
what's the yeah like what's the reply then like Mate, I, I was think, just saying hello I don't want to know your life story hundred percent you know so it's then very confronting and because we're not presented with that scenario very often then people don't know how to deal with it so it's kind of the flip side of the coin it's like people don't necessarily want to ask that question because they're really scared of go down the rabbit hole what if someone's not fine and now what if I say the wrong thing and oh god am I going to get stuck here for the next like half an hour hearing about this life story and shit what do I do I don't know if I can help them so they've stressed about all the stuff before they've even asked the question so then they just don't ask the question at all yeah yeah um live in organization yeah uh tell us what they do and what like what and what do you do for them these talks you give what are you what are you talking about I have been an ambassador for Living for about five and a half years now. Their uh, mental health charity, their whole aim, I guess, is to smash the stigma that surrounds mental illness and suicide. So they want to, I guess how I would paraphrase it, is inspire, empower, educate more people to have more conversations that could save more lives. So we want to make conversations that were taboo or considered dark or too deep you know, dinner table conversations. You should be able to have an honest conversation around the dinner table about how you're feeling and not be judged on that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, um, so that's kind of what they aim to do. And I go into schools or corporates or sports clubs or rural communities and have a chat about, you know, the whole I'm fine portion of things, how to have a conversation, um, how to be meaningful, how to um, recognise any signs and symptoms that could be associated with a mental health challenge or a mental illness, and then how to, you know, imply self-care strategies to yourself, how to then apply those self-care strategies as recommendations to your mates and how to check in, how to have those confronting um, and often uncomfortable conversations um, so that we can all, you know, check in with ourselves and check in with our mates and just be good human beings. Um, I love what I do with them. And I guess, you know, in terms of telling my own story, in the five and a half years that I've been an ambassador for them, I've, I've sort of found that like one of the most simple things that you can do that's the most impactful is having a story and then telling a story because sometimes telling your story or sharing your story is the one thing that somebody else needs to hear in mm. order to feel okay about sharing their own or starting a conversation about their own. You know, it's that whole me too, oh my God. And I honestly like... Everyone doesn't want to burden everybody else with what they're going through, but I think people would be really surprised with how many people can relate to something they're going through if they just had an honest conversation like about a breakup or about a work stress or about a bullying incident. If they opened up, the other person's automatically like, oh my God, me too. And it's like that palpable sense of relief that you're not alone. Mm. So we just need to start having these conversations and being okay with it. What's, what's the response that you get on the whole? You're obviously speaking with a lot of different groups of people in different situations. Is it something where you get a room full of people and they're like, you know, they're all coming up to you at the end, they're like, that was amazing? Or is it something where, you know, you, you know there's people there that, that maybe need to hear what you're saying, but now's not the right time, there's a, there's a message gets through to a couple? It's a mix of both of those. So, I mean, I've been to school talks where... I've literally walked out going, oh my God, why do I do this? The kids don't want to be here. They're so Mm. disengaged. Everyone was fidgeting. No one was listening to a word I said. And then I've got four or five messages on Instagram with like, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, I really needed what you had to say. You know, I really needed to hear what you had to say today. Um, You know, through to people that you're looking at while you're speaking who are clearly uncomfortable with some of the messages that you're putting out and most likely because they're going through something but they're just not at a point where they're ready to deal with it yet and then they leave and don't speak to you but then you hear from them two or three months down the track 
Like I remember sitting on a plane one day and I was eating a caramel koal and I'd just finished a seminar and this guy came and sat down next to me on the plane and I'm like chatty Cathy usually on the plane but I was really tired. Anyway, this, this guy sat down next to me and he's like started asking me about my caramel koala. He's like, oh, is this a cheat day and la la la. Because obviously like I'm wearing a singlet, muscles are out, you know. We're having this conversation and I was like, oh, you know, I fucking love caramel koalas. And then I've, I've happened to see that he's like watching, like looking at the rugby league scores. I'm like, oh my God, did the Roosters win? And we had this whole conversation. They're my team. Um, I don't even know if he actually gave me an answer, but we laughed about the fact because I don't think that was his team at all and he didn't want the Roosters to win at all. Um, but then we got chatting about all this other bunch of stuff and my journey into sobriety because I think at that point I'd been like sober nine or ten years. It turned out that obviously he had this massive story with being out drunk and being king hit waking up and then being in hospital and losing everything when he woke up and the whole sobriety thing really hit a note with him but anyway we left the plane and I didn't really think much of it it was like you know see you good luck with the rest of your life and then I got this message through actually through Facebook probably three or four months later and this guy was like hey I don't know if you remember me but I sat next to you on this plane back from the seminar we're talking about your caramel koalas and the roosters by the way, good luck, congratulations, they're doing really well. He was like, by the way, you really inspired me that day and I haven't drunk since that day. And I've since then I've got my life in order, I really want to come in and train with you. Um, you know, do you have any spots? And I ended up training him for sort of like four or five months and now he's off training an AFL, like a junior AFL team. So, you know, it just kind of goes to show that you just have no idea when you're going to have an impact on somebody or what you're going to say at any particular time that could resonate with them so much so that they change something in their life. And that was just a really cool story that reminded me of that. That's cool. Yeah. It's powerful because it's, it means nothing to you. You're just telling this guy what you're about. And then it ends up having this like life altering impact on him. Oh, hundred percent. Imagine like, imagine anybody and anybody could be out there having any sort of conversation with anyone else and they could say something and they could literally change the course of that person's life. Like, I don't think people realise that they have a gift to be able to do that. And it is a gift. What took you, what drove you to becoming sober? Well, my, so I said that my mum was diagnosed with manic depression when I was sort of 15. When I was 17, she tried to take a life. I walked in right as it was about to happen and I intervened and she survived. But our, our sort of, that was the beginning of the end, I guess, of our relationship as mother-daughter because it really changed our dynamic from then on in. But more often, you know, more than that, our lives were medicated. So my mum was put on this cocktail of antipsychotics and steroids. My dad self-medicated with a bottle of whiskey sometimes two a day. Um, and that was sort of when I was really going to the gym. So I'd, I found my sanctuary. But my dad was like a functioning alcoholic until he was just a plain old messy alcoholic until he actually died of liver cirrhosis as a direct consequence of being an alcoholic. And the whole journey was just painful to watch, you know. And I, I think I always thought that at some point I would be able to help him walk away from that side. But it was a really, you know, at one point it became really, really clear to me that I, you can't love someone out of addiction. You can't guilt them out of it. It kind of has to be something that that person wants to do for themselves and I remember having this conversation with my dad while I was at university and he was drunk and he wanted me to drive him to the liquor store and I was like no I'm not going to be an enabler and he was like well if you don't drive me I'm going to drive myself and I was like fuck well imagine if you got in a car and you killed somebody driving drunk I would never forgive myself for the fact that I had the opportunity to drive you so what do you do with that it was like do I tough love this out and be like okay this is the end of my relationship with my dad because he's not behaving how I would want him to behave 
or do I go, well, this is how it is now. And if you want any sort of relationship with him, you're kind of just going to have to do the best you can to support him while he drinks himself to death. Mm. Um, but it was sort of the turning point and I had to accept it. And then, you know, I moved to Hong Kong to, for a job and he actually ended up in hospital really sick from liver cirrhosis from his drinking. And I remember his doctor ringing me just being like, you know, I just don't know how much time he has left. So I spent my whole life just waiting for that freaking phone call. And then, you know, when it finally came, by the time I flew back, he was already in a coma. He was already jaundiced. I didn't really get to say goodbye. And I went to his funeral. I drank a slice bottle of whiskey, got absolutely shit-faced, you know, vomited on myself, fell in a ditch, missed my flight home. Classy. Appropriate. Um, yeah. Turned to my partner in the morning and was like, you know, I'm never going to drink again. Said no one ever. And, um, you know, he sort of rolled his eyes. And, but I went, to back, I went back to Hong Kong and I've been sober now for 13 years. And, you know, it was the best decision I ever made, but it was also the hardest because it is amazing to me how confrontational it can be for the people around you, the decisions you make about your own life when they feel like you are indirectly challenging their own lifestyle choices. And that's like kind of like if you've ever been out in Australia or in New Zealand or in the UK where we've got such a big drinking or drinking sporting culture combined, it is more normal to be out drunk than it is to be sober. Like you do get judged for it and that's really sad that that happens. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I've, I've had it for periods where I, where I don't drink and you kind of, you're at the pub or whatever and you, you knock back around or you want to leave early and it's like, hey, have another drink, man. Fuck, you know. And, you've, and the pressure that you feel to be like, oh, I need to have another drink with the guys. Like yeah. that's important for me to be a part of this group. And you don't even, you don't even associate it, but you're just like, yeah, like, when you, when you talk the way you're talking about it now, you're like, fuck, it really is this huge cultural pressure that's placed on all of us. Oh, it is. I remember like we actually did a 98 seminar once and one of the guys asked the question, he was like, there was this whole research theory on what is the one thing that if you took away from a rugby team that would cause them to perform less, like to, so they weren't performing at their mm -hmm. best. What do you think it was? You can say alcohol. Correct, because that was their bonding. Right. That was where they got their team bonding in. So if you took alcohol out of the equation, the team didn't perform well together. Holy and shit. And I was like, oh my God. And that is literally the culture that we're now in. You know, and if you, for me, it was kind of like the beginning of the end of like a lot of my friendship groups because no longer I wasn't the fun one that you could invite out to anything more. People didn't know what to do with me. But also it was the beginning of the end of my relationship because we met while I was drunk. Mm, well, he was right. drunk as well. Yeah. And it's amazing when you don't, that was one of the things we had in common. That's we right. liked to go yeah. out and drink and all of a sudden it was like, well, what else do we have in common? You know, maybe that's another reason why I've been single for nine years. Like <laughs> everyone else is drunk. Who knows? It's really hard to pick up when you're sober. Like everyone else is drunk. Yeah, totally. Dating sober is the, not fun. <laughs> the nerves get the better of you. You notice yeah. you're just that little bit extra jittery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting journey. I don't regret it, but it definitely makes life harder in some regards. Like I'm not going to lie about that. Have you, like that, that's, what you went through with, with both of your parents passing away and the way that it happened and the effect that it had on you. And that's obviously a very traumatic experience and not necessarily in that, like, not that you are necessarily traumatized now, right? It's not to, it's not to say that, but did you go through a stage of, like, did it affect you and did you, 
what am I, what am I trying to ask here? Did you find yourself kind of broken by any of that? Or were you, were you always, have you always been like, okay, cool. What's the next step forward? And how do I make the best of this? Cause that, that's what comes through with a lot of your story is that you, you, you're always, you're able to like turn these things around. Yeah. Look, there's been one time in my life that I felt completely broken and that was after my dad passed away. So I had no family at that point. Like I don't have any family. And I I knew it was the beginning of the end of my relationship in Hong Kong. And at that point, like I was living with my partner who owned the gym that I was working at. So he was like, I was living with him. My friends were his. My jo- the, I was working for him. I had no other family. Um I, for the first time, realised that I was completely alone. And I think it was, I'd never, ever had that realisation. And I remember standing in our apartment in Hong Kong and bawling my eyes out and not wanting to be there. And I don't think, like, I think at that point, I never realised I had the capacity to feel that low because I'd never, ever experienced a feeling of such hopelessness. And it probably took me a good like five, 10 minutes of standing in my living room by myself, like literally boiling my eyes out going, I just don't want to fucking be here before I actually picked up the phone. And I called, um, I actually called a psychologist and I was like, somebody needs to fit me in and somebody needs to fit me in soon or I'm going to do something stupid. Hmm. And I went and saw a psychologist that very day. Wow. And it was the best thing I ever did. But there are so many people that have probably been in that situation and haven't done that. And I don't know what it was that made me pick up the phone. Um, but yeah, I've never, I never, ever thought that I would be at that point. And it was really interesting to me, you know, when, when COVID hit, I remember having a conversation about this and it was kind of like, cause I was, I almost felt guilty when I would have these conversations when people ask how you were doing. And I was like, cause I was really good. Like I was doing really well, but you'd have conversations with people who weren't doing well at all. And I was like, I think for me, it comes back to the fact that I have had so many traumatic things happen to me in my life that my reference point for shitty things happening Mm. is so high that any other thing that comes in under that, you kind of go, okay, cool. Been through something worse than this beforehand. I know I can get through it. What do I need to do to make this better? Who can I reach out to? What's around me? What do I need to do to adapt? Whereas for a lot of people, COVID... And whatever happened along with COVID was literally the worst thing that had ever happened to them. So they had no reference point for having to pull through anything else or having to get through anything else. So they didn't know that they were going to make it through okay. You know, so I I think that made a huge difference as to how people perceived that situation. So having gone, yeah, so, you know, whether it's rock bottom or whether Mm. it's experiencing some big lows, that's enabled you to kind of have a little bit more resilience coming into other parts of life. I think that's what resilience really is. It's experience. I don't think, I don't know that you can actually teach resilience. I think you have to live it. I think you have to go through something, figure it out, live through it and learn from it. And then everything else that you go through from that point on, you can use it to help you through something else. And then, you know, my hope is that all the stuff that I've been through I can share my story in the hope that it will tell a story of resilience to somebody else out there, which will give them hope that they can then get through whatever it is that they're going through. Very cool. Very cool. Mm. What, could you, um, what could you suggest as, as actionables for people who might be listening to this, who might be like, I need to talk to a psychologist or I'm the person that always says I'm fine and I've got some shit I'm not dealing with. What do you... What can, what can folks do? 
You know what? The first thing I like to remind people of is kind of like, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm really not okay, but I don't want to burden anybody else. It's like, remember the last time that you had a good mate come to you where the problem, big or small, doesn't matter what it is and how good you felt just by like being able to help them out literally just by sitting there and holding space or listening. Like, did you feel like a really good human? Does it make you feel really good to be kind and to be able to give back and to be able to help? So you're sitting with this experience that you don't want to burden somebody else, but you know how good it feels to actually be entrusted with somebody's journey so that you can help them out. So flip the switch and just remember that that's, that's what you're empowering them or that's what you're gifting with them, the ability to make you feel better. And they're going to feel like a pretty good human too. You know, and then it just, it brings you together. You have this shared experience and shared bond. Um, and then I think when it comes to, you know, feeling at your lowest point, it's, it's easy for us to sit here and be like, you know, you're not alone and everybody else is out there and there's so many people that want to help you. But at some point, like, you've kind of got to take responsibility for how you're feeling. Um, you can't rely on everybody else to fix you. That's a tough one, eh? Because you mentioned that kind of before. And, it is. And I can't help but think of people I know. And I'm sometimes, yeah, you, you can't, you can only take them to the water, I suppose. Yep, you can't that last force them step, to drink. You know, and you know, you could, you know, when we're talking about it in terms of like asking people how they are and having, you know, finding a safe place and opening up a conversation and then giving, you know, having the opportunity to listen. All you can do is let people know that you're kind of there um, and offer to help. Like I like to ask the question: Is there anything I can do to help? at that point because some people just don't some people don't want unsolicited advice and some people if you're having a conversation with someone and you or you do you're not really listening you're just there to give advice like you're trying to fix their problem Mm. that can often give people a really negative experience because they just want you to sit there and listen Mm. um but there is no right or wrong way to approach any situation there's so much research now to suggest that you're never going to say the wrong thing anyway like the fact that you've even opened up a conversation shows that you care in the first place Mm. um but it's like to trust in the fact that there is no one size fits all solution when it comes to making yourself feel better and sometimes it's a case of just committing to the fact of you want to get better um psychologists might not be the right fit for some people some people might go to a psychologist and have a really really bad experience and be like i'm never going to talk to someone else again but it's kind of like just committing to that process of finding what is the right fit like when i was when i was quitting drinking i went to aa and i tried aa and i really didn't like it it didn't resonate with me at all but i stood up and i shared my story i don't know why <laughs> just because i obviously wanted to share something at that point <laughs> down um, to have a chat yeah down to have a chat i didn't you know i didn't really get anything out of it apart from that um apart from meeting some pretty cool people but i did at that point i knew I wanted to get better. Um, it's hard. Okay, maybe the best advice would be to find a focus or find something greater than yourself to focus on. For me, like when I quit drinking, I got into half Ironman. Okay, so I that gave me a focus. It gave me a new goal. It gave me something so that in the weekends I wasn't sitting at home with FOMO while all my friends were out partying, mm-hmm. and, you know, because I knew that I'd have to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning. But it also gave me this entirely new social circle. There's a community aspect to it, isn't there? This is, yeah. And this is the part where I think where we can, you know, which you guys will resonate with. Like for me, it gave me an entirely new social circle who absolutely understood what it was that I was trying to do and wanted to support me in being the best version of myself. So all those friends, those friendship circles that I lost in Hong Kong because they didn't understand me anymore, 
Now it's a completely different story. Like I go to a bar and my friends absolutely get me. For them, it's a win-win situation. I'm the best designated driver around, like, hello, Uber Alexa. You know, and they're at the bar getting me like a drink of, you know, a drink of water or a soft drink before I've even had to ask. So, you know, the second part to that question is find those people mm. who really want to enable you or support you to be the best version, best version of you, you know. So it's... And that can be a really hard thing to do is to identify that there are people in your life that are really toxic. For me, you know, identifying at that portion was at my lowest point that my relationship was now toxic and having to let that go, having to find a way out of it. Like when I went and saw the psychologist, that was what came up as being the thing that needed to change the most. You know, and sometimes for me, I think especially I, you know, identifying that you're really unhappy like actually sitting down and being like, you know what, I'm fucking unhappy. That's a really hard thing to accept and to admit to yourself that you're at a point where you're really unhappy. And just because you've admitted and identified that doesn't mean that it's going to be the road to redemption or the road to happiness straight away. It's kind of because that is the point where you have to commit to going, okay, well, this is the point where I go one of two ways. I can either give up or I have to commit to that process of finding happiness again. And maybe it's about finding a reason to be happy again. Do you want to do that for yourself? Do you want to do that for your kids? Do you want to do that for your family? Do you want to do that for the people in the community so that you eventually have a story to share so that other people out there can do that? I don't know. Like it's, I want to say that there's like a, a piece of advice I can give for people at that lowest point, but there's just not. Like I think you just have to find something within yourself to want to hold on to. That's a powerful message, my friend. Hmm. Thank you. You're very welcome. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a really, we really appreciate you sharing your story. And yeah, you said at the beginning of the show that you're an open book with this stuff and you really are. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you know? I try. I try like, and it's learned, you know, and I think it's, it can be harder for people who haven't dealt with everything to talk about their stuff. Like I've done, I've had, you know, 13 years of being sober to find out who I really am without a crutch so that now I'm completely confident sharing, you know, who I am and what it is that I do. There's, you know, because I know. But it takes people, takes people a while to get to that point. Where can people connect with you? Where they you can go, slide go into my DMs. Get in those DMs. <laughs> Don't send me dick pics, send me dog pics. You're probably more likely to get a response. <laughs> I'm going to start a trend. Um, yeah, probably Instagram, Action Alexa. That's where I do I, most of my work. I'm also on Facebook or LinkedIn or all the rest of it. But I'd say the biggest platform that I use would be Instagram. Get on the IG. Get on the IG. You have any upcoming events? Are you talking anywhere? Anything in the calendar that you want to plug? Um, you know what? Actually, not really at the moment. Um, cool. There's a few like it's – Funny, we talk a lot about people wanting to have an influence. There is a 15-year-old girl at the moment who actually just wrote a massive letter to Livin saying that she lost a friend to suicide and she wanted to make a huge difference. She's actually petitioned for 15 schools to have the Livin' Well program delivered in their schools. It starts, we're starting on Monday night. All of the principals from a lot of schools are going to be there along with some media on Monday night. So it's a massive talk. Um, but cool. I guess it's just, this isn't any specific event happening, but just a reminder to anyone out there, if you want to make a difference, you absolutely can. Um, you know, if you've lost someone or if you're struggling, please reach out. There are plenty of people out there who care. There are plenty of people out there who, you know, will want to 
want to make a difference. Um, and if you want to make a difference, you know, just put pen to paper, brainstorm and get involved because you can do anything you want to. That's cool. Live in, what's uh, that's L-I-V-I-N? Yep, livin.org. Dot org. Yeah. Cool. Um, good time to mention Rise Foundation, a group that we, we do a lot of work with. Um, we're a Rise Foundation safe space, Correct. I believe. So, you know, Jungle Brothers is a place for that. Email us, email live in, email Rise. Get, you know, there's, there's a, like Lex said, there's a bunch of good places out there um, that are open to you. And whether it's something you want to talk about directly or you just want to come and be around a community of people who are, like Lex said, um, have your best interests at heart, those places are available too, so get in touch. Mate, thank you again. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks, Paul. Thank you. And uh, Yeah, cheers for listening, guys. Um, we hope you enjoyed that episode. Please take a screenshot of it, post it on your Instagram, tag us, tag Lex. Um, spread the word because, one, it helps to support the show. But it, and it helps us get more epic coffee. guests like Lex. It helps support the <laughs> coffee, right? Helps us get more coffee. Um, but it also helps to get this message out there. And, you know, obviously what we're speaking about is something that's very important. And I think I don't think anyone could listen to that and think, eh, it's not relevant to me. Um, so talking more about this stuff puts it out into the ether and that helps the people around us. So thanks again. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Peace.